Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 190, and today's guest is David Brown, managing partner of Impellent Ventures. David and I go way back. We first met when he was the executive director of Tug, a nonprofit embedded in the tech industry in Boston. He is now back to his roots living in Rochester, New York, which has a growing tech scene with several startups and lots of great academic institutions. Impellent Ventures is a fund that is supporting early stage startups. The firm has made investments in multiple regions like Boston, but a core piece to their strategy is to invest in startups in Western New York. After returning to the area, it became very apparent to David that there was a large opportunity to fund companies locally and help grow the ecosystem there. During our conversation, we get into the weeds on the startup scene in Rochester, New York, which was very interesting to learn about because it has some parallels to the earlier days of the Boston ecosystem. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how David got into venture and if he always had a goal of being an investor, his foundational years and career path leading up to starting a new venture firm, all the details on Impellent Ventures and a look at their current portfolio of companies, common pitch mistakes that entrepreneurs tend to make, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can set up a user profile on VentureFizz? It is a new feature that gives you access to personalized content, job seeker tools, and administrative features to help manage your email subscriptions. To create a user profile and maximize your experience on VentureFizz, go to VentureFizz.com backslash register to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with David. David, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Keith. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the podcast because we go a ways back. We're going to go through your professional journey, but I think the first time we met, I think we grabbed coffee to talk about Tug. Yeah, that sounds right. I had to be probably back in 2012, 2013, somewhere around that period. It's hard to believe it's uh, it's been so long, but it's been great to have you as a friend, and it's uh, it's been great to go through this evolution alongside you. Exactly. Yeah, time flies by, but uh, you've done a lot since then. So we're going to dive into that. But you know, now you're. Uh, you, you started a venture firm called Impellent Ventures. So, um, you know, did you always see yourself as an investor? And, you know, for people that are interested in that type of career, um, you know, what advice would you give to others who are interested in a role in venture capital? Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, great, great question. Kind of kick it off, Keith. No, you know, I, I don't think I could actually say I ever saw myself being an investor, right? I, I've always kind of loved the aspect of finance and investing, and I've always loved startups um, but i've always kind of seen myself much more in the entrepreneurial role than in the investor role and i think we'll uncover this a little bit more as we we kind of open up the story today but fundamentally i kind of fell into this investor role because of what i saw in the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in western new york and because of pattern matches to, to a lot of my own personal experiences and, and history of what i've done from an ecosystem perspective and an investment perspective and so it's fundamentally interesting to me um you know i, I think on a high level um for me entrepreneurship really is what drives economies it drives ecosystems and is one of the most important social drivers of economic change and so for me being part of that and being able to help drive that here is fundamentally interesting and so now that i'm in the role it fundamentally makes a lot of sense, but it wasn't something that I, I could say I consciously went out and said, this is the one and only one role I want to be in for my career. 
Yeah. But there's been, I've seen, you know, people that take different paths into venture. Um, you know, yours is definitely one of the paths, but uh, you know, for, from kind of a big picture, like what, what would you recommend for people to do to set themselves up for maybe that type of role? Yeah. You know, I, I, my path is very nonlinear, right? <laughs> yeah. We can jump into that uh, when we go through it step by step. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm kind of the, the self-starter version. I think there's kind of three ways you can view yourself getting into venture cap, right? There's the traditional finance to MBA to analyst and, and growth role. There's the entrepreneur operator role, right? Where you go out and you spend some time actually working with a startup, uh, get some good pattern matching and then run into the venture world from there. Or you start as kind of a personal investor, right? You do some angel investing, uh, some operator role, some finance roles, and then you decide to start your own venture fund because you have a niche or you have an emerging market that you're particularly excited about and, and invested in and you have credibility to go out and start that. Um, you know, and that's kind of my story. So I, I put myself in the third branch, which is probably not the most common way to get here. Um, but I think fundamentally, if someone's interested in VC, there's a lot of different ways to get here. It's about doing what's authentic to your own personality and your own life trajectory. That's it's fundamental to getting here. Yeah, and what's been cool to see about venture is the evolution, how the firms are providing a lot more support to the portfolio companies. So it's not just investment partner tracks, you can be part of the operations, the, you know, the talent team. So there's lots of different things that VCs are providing these days to support their portfolio. <laughs> yes, I agree. Well, let's talk about your background. So uh, let's rewind the clock. Where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, so uh, actually born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but I was only there for about four years. Moved to Rochester, New York, which is where I'm back at now. And I spent, quote unquote, my formative years in, in the upstate region. Um, left here in 2003, swearing I would never come back to Rochester, not because I didn't love it. But if you looked at what was going on in upstate, right, uh, at that point, we saw the end of Kodak, Xerox, Bosch, and Mom. And so anyone who was in a technology perspective role didn't see See upstate as kind of the future of <laughs> anything particularly bright at that time. Um, you know, since we've seen some great evolution, some great things happening in the region. Uh, but for me at that point, I kind of said, great, see ya, bye. And I took off to uh, Williams College in Western Massachusetts. And so, um, you know, it, you'll learn as part of my personality, I love a lot of things about a lot of different areas of the world. And so going through a liberal arts education, small classes, focused kind of educational resources, was unbelievable for me and that that experience was really formative in terms of my own academic and professional uh, trajectory. So from Williams, I spent a little bit of time doing investment banking in New York, loved the finance world, hated working for other people. Uh, I'm probably one of the first people to kind of, or only people in my class to realize that investment banking kind of has a, a advisory capacity on it at the end of the day. And that wasn't as exciting to me. So I figured let's go back, figure out the operations side jumped to a management development program at McMaster Car, big industrial supplies warehouser out of uh, Chicago, but with offices all over the world. 110-year-old firm, great revenue stream. I, I don't know if I can publicly disclose where they are on the revenue basis, but um, they run a very impressive company. And if you think about kind of the long term of how you can build a business, seeing something that was third generation, uh, that had a lot of unique aspects of their own management practice was fundamentally interesting. Um, I knew I always wanted to go back to business school. I think that was very much a, a clear kind of educational trajectory story that was much more popular in my era than it might be today. But 
Um, knew I wanted to go back to business school. Started applying as I was finishing out McMaster Card, but knew that I would have a six month gap before we actually went back to school. I uh, got accepted to Babson on a full scholarship to do my MBA, focus on entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, but before that, I actually spent six months out in South Africa helping launch a, a number of social enterprise uh, companies for uh, HIV AIDS clinics. So my mom was an AIDS social worker, my dad was a doctor. And so uh, social, social benefit, giving back is something that's fundamental to my own life trajectory and story. Um, and something that, that was really meaningful for me and my wife to be able to go do some stuff at that point. So we were in uh, Lesotho, which is landlocked inside of South Africa for about six months. Came back, jumped into business school, was uh, in Boston from 2010 to about 2018. Um, and so from, from Babson, uh, I transitioned over to Tug, which was where you and I eventually met. Um, and they're kind of the philanthropic arm for Boston's tech ecosystem. Uh, started out by Jeff Agnan from Accomplice and Hey Montanasia from General Catalyst Partners, as well as Dana Samuels and some other great people from the tech ecosystem. Um, fundamentally, using and thinking about VC principles as a tool to help ex, uh, expand and accelerate philanthropic giving in the tech ecosystem. And so I was there for three years, uh, transitioned to a healthcare IT company from there called ZapRx and a uh, friend Zoe Berry had gotten up and going uh, very successful, raised about $42 million before selling on that one. Uh, and then I was recruited over by the Chamber of Commerce in Boston to help run innovation leadership, thinking about how companies partnered and accelerated uh, and how our anchor institutions in Boston could continue to be able to be supportive for the startup innovation ecosystem. And so was there for just about a year before we decided to move back to upstate New York for family reasons. Uh, Again, you know, 2017, when we made the transition back here, I wasn't thinking Rochester, Buffalo, or, or Syracuse had a lot going on, um, but my mom actually got diagnosed with a neuromuscular disorder that uh, kept her from being able to travel, kind of uh, offset my parents' own plans to retire out to Colorado, and we had just had our second boy. We had a, you know, four-year-old and a one-year-old at that point, and we said, geez, you know, there's a lot of awesome things that make fun Boston fundamentally valuable and a place we want to spend the rest of our lives. But family is too important to us to pass up the opportunity to have our kids grow up near their grandparents and to have that experience, which was fundamental to both my wife and I. And so in 2017, we backed up the, the truck, moved back to, to Rochester, New York. I was going to launch a company focused on early childhood uh, education. It was a wearable technology. And my wife uh, was working for Edward out of Boston. They were fantastic and let her continue to work remotely uh, before COVID was a, <laughs> a thing. And, and uh, that was been and has been a very successful relationship for her. So we've been back in town almost three years now. And, uh, you know, the venture process was something that we, we kind of came around to as a result of being back in upstate. Again, my plan was to launch a company. But what I found as I was going around uh, – kind of talking about it, exercising it, was that what I perceived as a lack of um, technology and economic capacity was fundamentally wrong. There was unbelievable capacity, unbelievable opportunities, some really neat things happening in our ecosystem, um, but really not, not kind of the players and, and development cycle that we've seen in Boston over the last decade. Uh, helping put together those pieces to fundamentally drive more investments in the companies that we have here, being able to build bridges to, um, you know, other investors and, and other sales channels 
And similarly, not thinking about kind of what do we do with our talent pool here. Um, so some good discussions there, but just nothing that had crystallized the same way that, that we had seen in Bo- you know Boston over the last decade. And so I viewed Rochester as very much uh, an area that had the fundamental roots and capacity to do great things, um, but just hadn't been given the chance yet to do that and hadn't uh, kind of got the organizational strength that, that we've been seeing in, in you know, uh, Massachusetts. And so we started the fund really to start kind of taking advantage and crystallizing that. So long-winded way of saying, you know, kind of how I, I started here. It's been a fun and linear trajectories. Yeah, you highlighted, you know, it's important, uh, you know, family decisions are what drive where you live a lot of the time. So, um, yeah. no, so impellent. So, so how did you meet or know Dennis DeLeo, your, your you know, your co-founder? Um, and you know, what's, what's the path like creating a venture firm? Cause it, you know, creating something from scratch, like you see, you know, accomplish, you mentioned general catalyst, these firms have been around for a long time now. And they've raised multiple funds. So when you kind of like set your anchor in the water, like we're a fund, we got to raise capital to fund other companies. Like, what's that process like? Yeah, no. So, um, you know, Denny's a great story. So, um, you know, we don't obviously have Denny right here next to me so you can see, but Denny's uh, just around 80 years old now. And so it looks very atypical for what we call the traditional VC investor and very different from, from my own footprint um, as being kind of the young gun back in town. But the, the story or the meeting process was actually when I came back working on that early childhood development uh, startup, I did a, you know, what most good entrepreneurs will do. I reached out cold, uh, cold turkey to a bunch of people who I thought were influential or could be influential in Western New York, Denny being one of them. So Denny had started a fund called Trillion Venture Partners previous to this. They were a regional fund investing only in companies in upstate New York. And over the last three funds, they had ran about $90 million uh, through both their core fund and, and uh, other special purpose vehicles to invest in startups. And so I reached out kind of with the, the purview, hey, you know, you're the last person I have seen who had a legit fund out here. What does it look like? How do, how do we get something going? And who should I as an entrepreneur be talking to? Um, and he was just an unbelievable mentor, right? Like you think about what you want out of a VC. It's not just capital, right? It's relationships, it's uh, strategy, thought process, partners, it's people who, who understand the ecosystem and what you're trying to do. And he fundamentally got what we were doing right away. You can tell that his, his uh, you know, cranks were going on full tilt, that he understood kind of the business process. And he had a very unique way of looking at businesses that uh, complemented how I look at them, but was different from, from that. Um, and so you fast forward about a year of running around the ecosystem and, and putting these different pieces together, um, as it became transparent to me that there was a real need for a venture fund within our area, that kind of ongoing support and mentorship from Denny quickly transferred to a, a working relationship where I said, Hey, look, you know, you're outside of the traditional story of what we would see in the VC community, but we could really use your help doing a, another rodeo. You know, what, what would it take you to get on board? And he was, uh, he was beyond excited, I would say, <laughs> to be able to do it, right? I think fundamentally when they were running Trillium, one of the things they realized, right, is ecosystems in isolation don't work well. Um, and so while they had an unbelievable management team 
for the trillion fund, they never had anyone who had that bridge back to other uh, startup ecosystems and could kind of make that a reality. And so we paired and partnered up very well from that perspective. In terms of the actual process to start a VC fund, I mean, boy, is it an interesting one. It's it's like, uh, I, you know, I kind of came into it and said, you know, hey, I know all these other VCs. I know all these other startups. This will be not easy, but, you know, we, we've got a head start. And the, the simple answer is if you haven't managed someone's cash before, you need to go prove that, right? You have to be able to show them not just your own portfolio investments that you've done, um, but also that you've got an, a compelling thesis, something that's differentiated, something that's fun. Um, and it's a process, right? It takes a while to get what I would call tipping point investors to get those people who can put enough cash in to really let you run and be able to prove out your thesis that it's something interesting, that it's something that that is viable uh, the way you described it. And so for me, it was a whole new network. It was a whole new world. Uh, it pattern matched up to a lot of things that we've done before, but with a whole new group of individuals. Um, and so that was really cool to be able to go through. I felt like an entrepreneur uh, the way I like to, to actually run at it. Um, I felt like I was solving a big problem that's fundamental. I feel like we haven't gone that far yet. So I feel like we still are solving that problem. And much like an entrepreneur, I feel like I'm wearing 20 different hats a day, right? As we pattern match and make this work. Um, but it's really exciting. I mean, it's one of those things that you're building reciprocity, you're building trust, you're building long-term relationships, um, and you're building a really long-term ecosystem change that's fundamental. And so what you point out, you know, GC and Accomplice have been around for a long time. I sure that those guys back in the day when they were first getting going saw and went through some of the same energy. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to know some fantastic uh, fellow venture, you know, uh, investors who have gone through this process recently and, and talked about how much fun and how interesting it is. And yet how sometimes you just want to pull your hair out because, you know, you have so many different meetings and so many other places to run around to. So it's been it's been an interesting process. Um, I would say it, it maps and trajectory uh, just like any other business. Right. Um, from that perspective, it's just a different network and different ecosystem. So. OK, so for impellent, what's uh, what, what are you targeting? Like what's your investment criteria that you normally look for? Yeah. So um, as I started indicating, you know, we came out of Western New York with a realization that there's an unbelievable untapped potential within our region. Um, but we also don't believe that being a fund that only invests in one region is a particularly adaptive long-term strategy. Some people do great just being in Boston or just being in New York City or just being in San Francisco because there's so much deal flow and so much concentration that you can pick and choose some great deals there. But I believe, and you know, I think COVID's fleshing this out, that fundamentally um, companies are going to develop and teams are going to develop across the nation. We've got too many resources and too much uh, labor arbitrage for everything to have to be concentrated in one region. And so for us, our, our investment thesis is twofold, right? We invest in companies out of Western New York where we think there aren't a, a lot of competition for those investment deals. And then we look to syndicate and partner with other tier one one VCs that we're connected with in Boston and New York and San Francisco to help fund and grow those companies. And then secondarily, we invest in companies from around the country um, that we think, you know, not as a prerequisite to our investment, but over time could take advantage of the, the arbitrage uh, that's in our market. And so as a quick case study, 
typical engineer in Western New York will cost you about $80,000, right? Uh, Boston, you're probably about 150, New York, you're 200, San Francisco, you're 250. So when we're looking at San Francisco as an example, we're basically a three for one price, uh, price differential. And those are, you know, Rochester Institute of Technology, University of Rochester, Cornell, um, University of Buffalo, Hamilton students, right? So very, very high caliber educational students uh, within our ecosystem, but just because of the cost of living and the proximity, a, a great opportunity to be able to expand a team without a lot of embedded uh, overhead. We, we actually jokingly sometimes refer to this as the uh, Eastern Europe of Western New York because, <laughs> because of the price and differential uh, and the, the quality. And so, um, you know, we're, we're really impressed by what's here, um, but we're not fundamentally only looking here for great technology. We don't want to invest in companies just because we're here. We want to be able to look at all the best e companies in the ecosystem and then pair those back up over time. Um, from a criteria, from an investment standpoint, and from a company perspective, we're tech agnostic, right? So the only thing we don't do is biotechnology. Uh, that's one of those ones that really, if you're not in Boston, San Jose, or in New Jersey, you're going to have a hard time doing effectively. Um, but we believe that a lot of other technology can be done well in other parts of the country. And so we cut across all sectors um, and focus on making sure that what we're investing in is great teams, right? So we come in at, at the early stages with new pre-seed seed, uh, very rarely, but occasionally series A. And the goal there is to be able to find those entrepreneurs who have a really good sense of kind of consumer need, good validation within their marketplace, um, and where we think we can be accretive to the, the success and growth of those companies. We already have a you know portfolio. I think there's what, is there nine investments so far? Is it yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, did our first close back in February, and we've been very busy since. So we've got three companies here in Western New York, uh, two in Buffalo, one in Rochester. We've got four companies in Boston, one in New York City, and one in Los Angeles at this point. Yeah, a couple of the portfolio companies, some Venture Fizz podcast listeners might recognize. Uh, we had Amy Sperling from Comps on the podcast, Rebecca Liebman from LearnLux. So uh, stories that we've shared with our audience already are part of the Impellent Ventures portfolio, which was good to see. Yeah, great companies. You chose good people to interview. So let's let's unpack the tech scene in Western New York a little bit. So, uh, you know, usually the foundation of a great ecosystem is academia. And you already highlighted so many great schools and like Syracuse, too. And it's just... Um, you know, there's a history of companies. You talked about that and, you know, going way back with some, you know, the Kodaks of the world. And, and so there's, so you need academia, you need people that have skills to build uh, and you need capital, right? Usually those are like kind of, obviously you need creative thinkers that are entrepreneurial to think of ideas to start companies around. So what the, because you spend so much time in Boston and you're just aware of the different ecosystems across the country, how would you like, define the, the tech scene out there from what you've seen? Because uh, I'm sure there's pros and cons. So I'm sure you're trying yeah. to help out with the cons. So what are the, what are you seeing for the benefits, the pros, and then what are the you know, areas for improvement? Yeah, you know, this is what got me excited about Rochester, right? And, and Western New York is I think we look like Boston 12 years ago, 10 years, 12 years ago, right? So if you take Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse, uh, and then kind of call it the Corning Ithaca area, which is where Cornell is, and, and Corning uh, Glass, which is huge. From Rochester, all those are about an hour, hour 15 drive. 
and you have an MSA of just over 4 million people in that region. If you look at Boston, you go north to south, you're about an hour on the whole region as well. Um, and the MSA is very similar. The big thing I think that, that's fundamentally been different in terms of what we have here and what, what's gone on in Bo you know, Boston is the concentration of town and labor, right? So if you look in the Boston ecosystem, when everything was spread on 495, 128, I think that was kind of uh, something that was useful, but somewhat detrimental to the long-term growth of the, the ecosystem. And so I think a lot of the energy, particularly in the technology sector in West or in uh, Massachusetts has driven from reconcentrating a lot of that tech talent and relationships in a more closely knit hub. Um, and so in Western New York, we sit with almost the same type of footprint, right? Similar educational training, similar number of colleges, similar uh, size of the community and technology workforce. We just don't have that concentration yet. And so part of it is pulling together the concentration, putting those success stories in the same area so that they can learn uh, from each other. You know, I think um, Tony Shea from Zappos did a great job of highlighting this when he started doing the downtown project in Vegas and through some of his writing. Um, natural collisions, right? Just the capacity for me to walk into a coffee shop in downtown Boston mm -hmm. and run into 20 people that I know yeah. uh, is huge, right? You have conversations that you don't expect to have and you start to put together points that you don't anticipate. And Western New York is on the verge of starting to really re-centralize a lot of those resources. Um, beyond that, though, everything else is fundamentally there, right? If you look at patents per population, we are, I believe, number two or number three nationally behind uh, San Jose and, and kind of San Francisco area, uh, with New York City kind of up there. I think we're even slightly above uh, Boston. I have to check those numbers at this point, but it's a, it's a really high... Uh, patent ratio. If you look at the academics, it's very strong. If you look at the uh, graduate attainment, it's very strong. Um, you know, it's actually really interesting. Uh, there's a guy, Jonathan Gruber, he's a professor over at MIT. He just wrote a really interesting book called Jumpstarting America. And it's looking at the pattern of innovation around our country and what uh, is available to get second tier cities to that state where they look like a Boston or they look like a New York or they look uh, like a San Francisco. And what he points to at the end of the day is that there's a lot of places that have the fundamental, but they need one, a little bit more government infusion of capital, but two, more regionalized uh, capital. And what was also interesting is if you pull up the very end of his book, he lists every single second tier city uh, across America and says, who has the most potential? Uh, it's not surprising to me now that I'm here, but if from the outside, it was really surprising. Rochester was number one. Uh, Syracuse was number three on his list. Uh, Boss or uh, Buffalo was number eight on his list. Uh, Ithaca was, I believe, thirteen, and Albany was eighteen. Right. So we've got this unbelievable concentration of raw resources ready to go, and just starting to turn those on, starting to bring resources out here. Um, and so, you know, I think one is concentration, and the number two piece that we're we're starting to hit on uh, will fundamentally be capital, right? So if you look at Western New York as an entity, we see about $200 million of annual venture capital into our region. Um, not because necessarily the quality of the companies don't justify it, but because we haven't done a good job of promoting those success stories. Um, we have not had leadership who's been good at connecting those companies back to other top tier VCs. 
which is what we're starting to do. Um, and, you know, I think fundamentally we haven't taught people how to go out and, and ask for that money in ways to really accelerate their ventures. And so we're just getting to that point. Uh, and we look, we're, we're in an enviable position from what the growth capacity looks like, right? I think one, investors are starting to open their own purview, right? Especially for uh, mid-stage and late-stage capital uh, for other regions. And I think the other piece is if you look at where we are geographically, Western New York is a one hour, one and a half hour flight from 20% of global venture capital dollars, right? And so it's not that these things are far away. It's just that we haven't done a good job of, of connecting the dots. And so those two pieces, I think, are, are really where we're, we're starting to push on. And I think if you look at it five, 10 years from now, it's going to look a lot like Boston and, and what's happened in that ecosystem last decade. Cool. Yeah, it's a good analogy of uh, the 495 and how that all concentrated in the innovation district and uh, what that ended up doing for, for Boston is pretty extraordinary. But um, so what are the schools doing? I know Cornell's pretty active with entrepreneurship. They have their outpost in New York City. What about the other schools? Like what, what, you know, usually there's the, you know, Boston with, you know, MIT, 100K, there's all these schools with, you know, the iLab at Harvard. Yeah. You know, there's so much that is fostering this idea creation, IP patents that help students to, uh, you know, start down that journey of entrepreneurship. Yeah, you know, I think, um, so every school has at least one program, right, focused on entrepreneurship. In uh, U of R, it's the AIM Center for Entrepreneurship, which is actually Mark AIM from Kronos out in Boston, uh, who's done some great things. A lot of Boston touch points back there, which is great. Um, RIT, yeah, you have the Simone Center, which is doing some really neat entrepreneurial training. Uh, Syracuse, uh, Cornell, and University of Buffalo all have Blackstone programs tied into their, their entrepreneurship training now. And those are just small microcosms across the university, specifically how do you pitch, how do you prepare. Um, I think the universities are getting better at it. I think the tech transfer offices are getting better at it. Again, it, it draws great parallels to, you know, where Northwestern, or sorry, Northeastern was 10 years ago, trying to figure out tech transfer, or where Harvard was when they were, you know, when Jody was just starting to put together some of the original concept for the iLab and where that's potential to go. Um, similar to where Babson was, you know, teaching entrepreneurship, but not having that downtown presence and starting to adjust to having, you know, entrepreneurship really tied back into the ecosystem. A lot of these universities have the fundamentals and are teaching the kids how to do that, but it's the earliest stage. Um, what I will say is that there are some good student ventures that are coming out of the region, but much like we find in Boston and other ecosystems, the ones that tend to raise the most money and have the most success still come into that five-year postgraduate work, right? So a lot of these guys will go out, work in any field of their choice in five to 10 years after getting real professional experience launching something really good. So I think the mentality of entrepreneurship is there for the students. Um, and now the turn point of getting later stage networks to start entrepreneurial ventures has really cranked. One of the things I think has also been huge for Western New York, and this is maybe uh, something of the last three years, right, three to four years, is the number of what we call boomerangs, people who have gone into New York or Boston and have started coming back to the region because of cost of living, families, growth, uh, has really kind of shot through the roof. And a lot of those uh, returns have been entrepreneurs. And so we're seeing some really cool stuff coming out of that side of the ecosystem, which is exciting as well. As well, a lot more connectivity back and forth, right? 
I mean, I, I'll stress it once and I'll stress it again and again. Our success and, and you know, the long-term value is not us in isolation. It's us working alongside Boston, New York, San Francisco, right? We succeed by our, our proximity and relationship to those cities, not by and through ourselves. What about the the success stories? So it's always helpful for a region to have a home run that exited and some other people go off and start other companies because maybe they've made a little bit of money from from their equity. So what have been some of the success stories so far? Yeah, so um, some of the really cool ones that have came out recently, Datto was an RIT alum, uh, you know, based out of Connecticut, but their entire tech team was here. Um, gosh, I want to say they've got 500 people on the engineering side here now, somewhere in that, that vicinity, uh, have done quite well. And uh, Austin McCord, who's the, the former CEO of Datto, uh, has done a lot giving back to uh, Rochester through RIT or otherwise. Um, similarly, Austin was recently at uh, General Catalyst, and so he got Catalan, which is a GC you know, uh, portfolio company to open a tech office out here. Uh, they've been growing pretty quickly. I think maybe 35, 40 people in the area. Um, but then, you know, the big successes regionally recently is probably ACV auctions, which is based out of uh, Buffalo. So they just uh, announced $150 million round at a $1.5 billion valuation, growing hand over fist, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And I would anticipate, you know, they're gonna be a public company within the next few years, which would be really, really cool to see. The other piece that, that kind of sits underneath a lot of this, right? And, and so there's the tech success stories, which are starting to be there. But there's a lot of back-end companies that you might not think of as being sexy or cool on a daily basis, but are here and are driving innovation uh, within our ecosystem. So Ryan Rochester, as an example, Wegmans has absolutely blown up and they're, they're doing some unbelievable things around innovation and helping transform this. Uh, Constellation Brands, which is the world's largest, you know, liquor and wine conglomerate in the world, is here, uh, and the Sands Brothers are doing some great things to support entrepreneurship and innovation in our region. Um, Paychex, uh, which was, you know, a, a leading tech company, has their entire, you know, headquarters based out of here, and it's grown very successfully. So we've got some of these legacy players um, that are in Western New York, continuing to do well. And I think one of the big changes is that all those founders and their companies are really starting to look outward and saying, hey, how can we help spur this next generation of entrepreneurship and innovation? And I think that was fundamental, right, in Boston as well. There's an aspect of the, the industry goes alone, the startups kind of lead the charge, but at the same time, the support of the rest of the, the ecosystem, the larger institutional players has been fundamental to the growth of that. So. We've got homegrown solutions that are, are doing really well, kind of a traditional venture route, and some really good instilled players that are doing some really cool things locally as well. So where should the, uh, the concentration happen? So going back to the analogy of Boston, they had the seaport, which was the innovation district, and that's kind of where it started, and rent got high there, so people ended up expanding outside of that general circle. But for Western New York, like where it should be in Buffalo, you know, like, where should there like like where Rochester like where should that concentration be because you got to kind of put your flag in the in the you know, flagpole at some point. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's the billion dollar question, right? So um, you know, I don't think we'll see a seaport in the same way we had the seaport, but I think each individual city is going to negotiate some sort of downtown hub. Um, right now, I think Buffalo is just shooting the lights out in terms of their downtown redevelopment. Um, you know, if you haven't been there or haven't been there in years, 
go see Niagara Falls and pop into Buffalo on the way there. Um, you know, they've done a great job redoing their river walk. They've been, done a great job uh, concentrating their startups through the 43 North program into kind of one area. They've got uh, Seneca One, which is uh, really pulling together a lot of cool startups into one building right now. And I think that that uh, will be kind of a, a good hub for short-term development for our region. Um, similar though, in downtown Rochester, uh, Wind Development, which is out of out of Boston, uh, has done a great job turning around the Sibley building here. We've got uh, NextCore, which is an accelerator. It's building some great energy around a centralized city uh, perspective. We're helping re-centralize things within our city. Um, if you go out to Syracuse, you see similar efforts with the, the Syracuse Tech Garden and Syracuse University supporting greater reconcentration within those hubs. And so what I think you're going to see is kind of these little pillars and pickups within each city um, where you almost have kind of three different ecosystems. And it does, again, still draw parallels to, to Boston where you have the seaport, but then you see the, the Newton, uh, you know, uh, Needham corridor picking up again, right? You're seeing these different pockets of innovation. You see the Cambridge uh, biotech corridor, right? I think we're going to see similar pockets of three to four cities doing some really amazing things, but a lot more fluidity back and forth. I said one of the biggest misses that we've done, uh, we probably have from an ecosystem recently is we just redid all of our airports, right? So Syracuse redid it, Buffalo redid it, Rochester redid it. I said, geez, guys, if we just ripped, you know, two or three of those out and just had one central one, we could have been in Minneapolis-St. Paul or Dallas-Fort Worth with one major airport that had international flights, right? So we got one ding on our, our, our belt. It's that you still can't fly directly to San Francisco, right? You need to be able to have some of those longer haul flights um, and some of that infrastructure conversation, I think, will, will play in over time. But it's just so easy to run from city to city that I wouldn't be surprised if you just have downtown corridors in each and every single one of these cities that's very strong over the next few years. And you're already seeing that with pricing and, and growth opportunities in those ecosystems. Okay. So you're meeting with a lot of entrepreneurs that are pitching you their companies. So what feedback would you have for founders on, you know, calling, calling pitch mistakes that you've seen that uh, they should have <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know, I think there are, are two things um, that fundamentally give me, right? One, uh, entrepreneurs who really are coming in before they know what their market is, right? It's it's one thing if you want to come into a VC and say, hey, I've got a, a general idea that's still very conceptual, but I want to get your idea about the space, knowing full, full well that I don't uh, know exactly what that's looking for, but I want to know if it's interesting to you and what it can grow. I had some great, you know, mentors in Boston who, who were willing to do that with me, and I think that was fundamental. You know, big shout out to Eric Paley in particular. He, he was very thoughtful on some of those conversations. Um, but you know, a lot of founders kind of come in when they're still in a very conceptual basis and pitch it like it's a real business at that point. Um, and I think that that can, when you don't set expectations correctly, you can get yourself in a world of hard because it's very easy for us to kind of pattern match and say, Hey, you know, we saw this company already. We don't need to see it again. Um, where if you come in and kind of say, Hey, we're at the origination stage. Most VCs are really open to having those conversations. But if you don't set those expectations right, we're looking at you with a different frame and kind of context. And so uh, entrepreneurs can do a, a lot by setting themselves up right. I think the second piece that a lot of entrepreneurs uh, miss, right, is what it means to have a good team, right? So fundamentally at, at the stage that we invest in, I've got a working theory that every business is wrong, right? 
everything is a concept, everything's a thesis about how do you approach market, how do you get into it. Um, but you then need to go out and prove that that's, that's fundamentally a viable proposition. And that requires a lot of resources, the least of which is making sure that you have unbelievable people around you to support the strengths and we, you know, the weaknesses in particular that you have as a founder. And so a lot of people think that when we say go out and build a great team, it means go out there and just fill gaps, right? So I, I don't have a front end dev, I'm just going to go get a front end dev. No, for, for my perspective, and I think for a lot of VCs, putting a great team means going out and getting world-class co-founders or world-class people, right? If you have a vision of where you're going to go, your ability to attract and pull in people to share that vision uh, and to execute on the vision tells us a lot about who you are as a founder and where you're going. And so I think a lot of founders kind of make a miscue by just taking anyone off the street versus being really, really thoughtful in terms of who's on their team, why they're on the team, how they work together. Um, you know, you hear a lot of different theses on these, but I fundamentally believe you need to be able to, to go out and be very thoughtful about the team and culture that you're creating, because that will be what helps you succeed at the end of the day. So what's the best way to get a meeting with you? Like to get on, get on your radar. <laughs> um, you know, I'm pretty open when it comes to this, right? Like I know that there's a lot of, pieces of, of venture that have been preclusive in the past uh, in terms of getting founders of different uh, stripes and backgrounds uh, up and going. And so we're, we're very open to people directly reaching out. So I would say the easiest way is just to email me. It's just David Brown at impellent.vc, right? So that's, that's simple. And it, it always gets kind of at least the initial conversation up and going. Um, but outside of that, you know, if you know someone who knows us, have it come over, if you're already funded by an investor, we know it doesn't hurt, right? Like it helps bridge the conversation. If you know one of the founders or entrepreneurs in our network, feel free to go through them for an introduction. You know, we we appreciate the insights. We don't count, you know, exclusively on those insights, but we we count on the insights and and uh, relationships that we build over the years. So people we have good faith in and trust in uh, can really help you move your application along. Um, although we'll always take, let someone come in the front door. So, Got it. Okay. What are uh, three apps you can't live without? <laughs> I'm pretty basic when it comes to apps. I'll be honest with you, Keith. Um, you know, probably Google Maps, right? Like, I think one of the funniest things was coming back to Rochester and realizing how wrong I was about where everything was because you kind of have that kid's mentality of like, oh, this is north, this is south, east is west. I was completely wrong about all of them, right? The, the closest town to me, I thought was directly west. It turned out it was mostly north and then just a little bit west from us, right? So uh, I think Google Maps has been fundamental for me. Um, you know, that keeps me going. Nest, right? We're, we're always in and out of the house and I'm always forgetting something. So Nest has been fundamental for being able to do that. And then, you know, Spotify, just something to kind of keep the tunes going, keep, keep me balanced, right? You need to have that music, you need to have something to go. So those are probably the three most basic ones. And then, uh, you know, the joy of mail and, uh, text messaging <laughs> and uh, the other communication apps. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm pretty basic when it comes to that stuff. Okay. Any podcasts that you recommend or, or books that people should, uh, should be reading? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I mentioned earlier, I think, uh, if you're interested in learning more about our thesis, you know, jumpstarting America is an unbelievably thoughtful, uh, retrospective about what's been happening from an ecosystem perspective. 
um, I would say take a look at some of the writings that that have uh, came out of the uh, downtown project and Tony Shea's efforts in in uh, um, Los Angeles or Las Vegas. You know, I think those are informative. Um, emotional intelligence. You know, I think part of running a team. So De- emotional intelligence is by Daniel Goleman. Uh, it's one of the original books, like in what's called EQ, right? So instead of just having a traditional IQ, we got a lot of smart founders, but how you balance and, and build a team, I think is fundamental. So think about kind of that emotional quotient and what it takes to um, manage and work through different levels of intelligence and different types of team structures is good. And then one of the other ones that I just love, right? So I was a, I was a psychology and leadership studies major undergraduate, and there was a, one book that I just think is is changed my life. It's called uh, Leadership. It was written by James McGregor Burns. And it was one of the original thesis pieces on uh, real leadership, right? So it looks at mostly presidential leadership um, and what moved different presidents along. But it created this concept of transformational leadership, right? With the idea that in time, there are two types of leaderships. You can leadership or, or kind of concepts that you can work on. One is transactional that kind of slowly moves the economy along or the ecosystems along. And then there's transformational that looks at not just how do you do something well, but how do you do something that changes the paradigm? And so when I think about venture capital, um, I think of our companies all having that potential to really 10x the experience of the user, right? It could be a 10x improvement in cost. It could be a 10x improvement in function. It could be a 10x uh, improvement in efficiency but they fundamentally think about uh, transforming how we do things, right? It's not just kind of moving things along a little bit. And so while that is uh, way more of a political economy study than it is a traditional startup, I think that the learnings from that can be easily translated. So those are our four quick books, you know, but there are I'm sure many other good ones out there and plenty of other good podcasts. So, so you're busy building a venture firm, um, family, so, but outside of that, what, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? <laughs> yeah. uh, pretty much everything I get to do outside of that, right, are, uh, are, are tied to the kids or tied to work in, in one yeah. way or another. But I've been fortunate. I grew up as a, a big skier and a big golfer. I was competitive moguls and aerials for a long time. And, you know, while my body does not allow me to uh, throw yeah. myself high in there anymore with the exception of occasional cliff jump here and there. Uh, skiing is fundamentally fantastic for me and I, I love getting out there and, and going for trips. So uh, we do that a lot. And then I've been playing more golf this year than I think uh, was, at, you know, probably consumed in the last 10 years period, just because it's uh, one of the easier places to meet people. And one of the only things that <laughs> didn't shut down in our area. So th- those two things consume a lot of my time if it's not direct family or work. Actually that consumes a lot of my family and work time as well. So, yeah, got it. Okay. Well, David, thanks so much for taking the time. It was great to catch up, hear all the great things that are happening in Western New York, which is uh, you know one of these tech and tech hubs that hopefully will flourish from all the great academia ideas and now capital through Impellent Ventures. So, thanks for sharing the story. Pete, my absolute pleasure, and uh, you know I look forward to to seeing you back at another party in Boston. We look forward to getting you out here in Upstate at some point soon. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.